All right, well, I think, I think we'll get started. Uh, my guess is that the rain has maybe scared some people off, or they'll get here a little bit late. Um, either way, let's, we'll intro this for a little bit, and then we'll jump into it. So, <clears throat> when you became a Christian, when you became a Christian, um, how were you introduced to Christ? What were some of the first things that you were told when you were a Christian? Was it how much Christ loves you, or here are some things you should make sure you do, and here are some things you shouldn't do? You're asking all of us. I can't really remember back then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't think about it as being a test of your memory. Um, oftentimes, when I see people come to know Christ, usually what individuals and churches do is they make sure right away they know their lists of do's and their lists of don'ts. That's just a tendency we have. But in Scripture, are you all shaking? Did you not learn it that way? That's because you guys came from a better church background than I did, obviously. <laughs> oh, okay, so you were born a Christian. That's... <laughs> there's, a co- there's a couple of pages that we missed, I guess, but... <laughs> okay. Let's not make that a quote from Mike Graham. <laughs> Um, so, in Scripture, whenever you see the word therefore, that's a really important word. Uh, a nerdy way of remembering that is every time you see a therefore, you want to ask, what is it therefore? And what happens with a therefore is you're going to find before the therefore, you're going to find the why, the purpose, the ground for the what on the other side. This is true, therefore, do this act like this, don't do this. So you're going to find a why and you're going to find a what. Okay, so there's, there's some really big therefores in Scripture. Here's some examples. Ephesians 4.1. So the first half of Ephesians, which is what we've been working on on Sunday mornings, is a big presentation of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, the work of Christ, how much he actually loves you, what he's done for you, and what is now true of you with your identity in Christ. Like, those are all the whys. Like, that's really important. Therefore, Ephesians 4.1, and then it goes into three chapters about how then you live out the gospel. If this is the gospel, and if this is true of you, therefore, this is how we then live. So just notice the order that's presented to us. The beauty of the gospel, the love of Christ, therefore, live this way. Sometimes in Christianity, We just start here with the what. Do this, don't do this. But we forget the the why, okay? Which is actually a really scary way of doing it because when the Lord teaches us what to and what not to do, he usually gives us the why first. Another example, Romans 12.1. Chapters 1 through 11 is an in-depth look at the gospel. Romans 12.1. He says, therefore, and he jumps into how then you live out the gospel. And he goes 12 through 16, working through how you live out the gospel. So when we say stuff like we'd like to be a gospel-centered people, this is what that means. That the gospel is the centerpiece of what we believe, and then it flows into what we do. We don't just do things, okay, because we were told to do things. We do things because 
of the reality of how we've been changed by Christ, by how we're loved by Christ, and therefore we want to live out the gospel because of the beauty of the gospel. That's why Jesus says things like, John 14, 15, if you love me, you're just, you're just going to find yourself doing what I ask you to do. If you love me, you're going to obey my commands. So this connection of the why and the what is huge. If we don't make this connection, then, I mean, we really end up living as hollow Christians. We end up becoming legalists or pharisaical, where our heart's in the wrong place, even if, our, even if we outwardly look like we're doing all the right stuff. So I would say in, in some ways, I feel like I've spent a lot of maybe the first year and a half, two years of Bible Center, just trying to reconnect some whys and what's together for people. Because I have run into some groups of people who have a lot of what's, but they've disconnected them from some of the whys. So that's one of the main things we've had to focus on, is getting people centered around the gospel again. Not just do this, don't do this, but the beauty of Christ, which leads me to live this way. Okay? So tonight, we're really doing a why conversation where we're going to go a little bit deeper than maybe what we did on Sunday. If you heard the sermon on Sunday, we worked through Ephesians chapter 3, and we worked through the prayer of Paul there, where he's asking God to give us the power we need to know his love. That would give us the ability to comprehend mentally and to know experientially and relationally the love of Christ. And that can't happen without God working in our life to make it so. Okay, so that's, that's the beginning of it. And part of what we talked about there is the fact that in those verses, it says that the love of Christ is that it surpasses knowledge. Now, no matter how hard we try, it's going to be a little out of our reach to fully understand it. I think one of the illustrations we had was like a ladder going into the sky that just goes up and up and up, and we will never get to the top of it. But every time we take one more step up the ladder, we climb one more rung of the ladder, we get a little higher view of how much he loves us. So tonight, the goal is to get a couple more steps up the ladder, is kind of what's going to happen. Last week, we did the Armenianism, Calvinism thing, and that's a fun conversation. But at the end of the day, it's like, you think this and you think that, but that's not what this is tonight. Tonight is, this is a time for to celebrate all of us regardless, because this is something we all can believe consistently in the same way. See, would you hit that door for me? They're going to start singing louder and louder. So this is how therefores work. We have a why on the backside, a want, a what on the other side. Okay, we're going to, we're going to use some other words tonight. We're going to talk about that, but every word in scripture matters, and that's a key one to understand how sentences go together and even how books go together. Here's something we haven't drawn on the board in a while, but we have our sanctification graph, where all of us before Christ, you know, we saw all those descriptions. Chapter 1, Session 1, who we were without Christ, uh, the whole concept of confession and repentance, that was the second section. Last time was, how does this decision actually take place? Does God choose you? Do you choose God? Is it just mysterious? Is it something in between? Tonight, so oftentimes our next conversation is about this line, where we're kind of growing over time in Christ. The sanctification line is not perfectly straight. This is called progressive sanctification. We're not talking about that tonight. But what we are going to talk about is this line. The moment we're saved, there are a bunch of things that become true of us immediately. Like the moment we're saved, there's a whole list of things that become true of us. Once we get into the yellow pages in your book, it's, at the top it's going to say 40 things that are now true of you. 40 positional truths. 
There are 40 things at least that become true of you the moment you place your faith in Christ. And those are wonderful things. Those are things that motivate you, that grow you, that prepare you for a life of living for Christ. These are called positional truths. These are positional truths. They are, they tell us about our identity in Christ. Okay? So these are positional truths. So that's kind of what we're going to focus on tonight. Does that make sense? So these are things that are always and forever true. Always and forever true. So if you would, turn with me to page 46. And we're going to start here talking about the reality that, reality that we're a new creation and we have eternal life. And then we're going to jump into the 40 truths right after that. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that your word tells us so many amazing things about who you are, what you've done, and how you've radically changed everything about us. Tonight, we're going to be looking at ways that you've displayed your love and how you've saved us and changed everything about us. So, Lord, I pray that we would just grow in our appreciation, our thankfulness, our gratefulness, and our love for you tonight. Uh, Speak truly and clearly through your word. In Christ's name, amen. So, results of the work of the cross— Uh, new creation, eternal life. First verse is Ephesians 2.1, and we've talked about this before. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, so before Christ you were spiritually dead. Not on life support, there wasn't like a faint murmur or beat in the background, spiritually dead. But then it goes on to say in Ephesians 2.4 and 5, but God, that's important, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So in and of ourselves without Christ, spiritual deadness. Together with Christ, we share in his life. With him together, we are spiritually alive. Colossians 2.13 says, same concept. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ having forgiven us all our transgressions. So we are now with him. There's a union. There's a connection. We have an identity with Christ. And that changes everything from dead to spiritually spiritually alive. So Jesus changes us from spiritually dead to alive in him. 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is a good verse. If you don't have this one memorized, I would work on this one. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Old gone, new has come. And even as we go farther into the study, we're basically describing this new creation that we've been made into. John 1, 5, 11 through 12, it says this, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Sometimes we think eternal life is something that's coming for us. That's something we're going to receive when we die. That's not what it says here. So if someone ever tries to tell you that you could lose your eternal life with God, here is a past tense situation. It says God has given us eternal life. It's an already thing. He has given it to you. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to wait and hope that it's going to be true. It's like an already thing. He has given you eternal life. So with this verse, this is a, I'm going to go on a rabbit trail, but this is a good one. 
uh, I think. When it comes to sharing the gospel, this verse sometimes, if you have it memorized or you have it handy, is a really helpful one in sharing the gospel. This might be an awkward question depending on the circumstances, but if you ever can work it where this feels like a normal question, a question that you could ask, some, ask somebody is, on a scale of one to a hundred, how certain are you that you're going to heaven? I've asked that question to many, many people. Uh, no one ever says below 50%, by the way. If you're just wondering, if you ever wanted to poll that and see what people say, no one says I'm on the bottom half. Everyone says above 50, and no one says 100. So it's always in that 65 to 85% range. That's what I always get. Uh, so in my mind, that tells me right away that this person doesn't really know what it means to know Christ. So I'll say, what if I could show you just one verse that lets you know with 100% certainty whether you are or are not going to heaven. Would you be interested in seeing that? And I've never had someone say no. They go, yeah, you can tell that in one verse. And I go to this verse. And I'll just read it out loud. It says, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. I'll look at them and I'll say, so according to that verse, who has eternal life? And they go, well, it looks like the one who has the son. Good job. And so you you encourage them. And then you say, would you have any interest in me telling you what it means to have the son? And then usually they say, yeah, I'd be interested to know. At that point, you can start walking them through some of the truths of the gospel. You could use your 10 gospel words. You have a couple other verses memorized ready to go, but you've, you've had someone just ask you to tell them what it means to have the son. That is not a hard set of questions to remember. They're very logical in sequence, and it sets you up to have a good conversation. Okay, so that would be one way of using God's Word to help you get into conversations that take you back to God's Word. So on the next page, I call that an evangelistic nugget. That's just a side, that, that's for free. You can just have that one, use that one. Back into our study, point B. Uh, we're going to talk about our union with Christ. We are considered in Christ, like we are in Him. As a believer, our entire identity has changed. Previously, we found our identity in ourselves in our achievements, in our possessions, in our relationships, but now our identity is only found in Christ and in Christ alone. All other things may describe parts of our life, but only He is the foundation piece, the cornerstone of our identity. Okay, so there will be times when we will struggle with letting other things slide into the centerpiece, slide into the foundation of our life, and slide Christ out. That's just something we have to be aware of. Um, we can be believers who love Christ, but then just sometimes become overly focused on just our career or just a relationship or sometimes even a hobby. Um, if I'm not careful, I think I could get older and think, all right, I've saved enough money. I'm going to golf for the rest of my life. Like I, there are people I know who golfing becomes the center of their life as they get older. Like, it can just happen. It's not even intentional. It just kind of slides into the center. So in everyone's life, there's kind of like this throne. And the question is, who or what is sitting on it? And if you're not careful, sometimes you end up sitting on it instead of Christ. Sometimes a hobby sits on it instead of Christ. So you just always need to be paying attention to that because he should be our identity, our centerpiece, our foundation in every way. Let's go ahead and jump into the 40 things. Page 48. 40 things that happened the moment you became a Christian. So there's, there's 40. So some of these I'm just going to read, and some of them we'll stop and pause and look at a little bit. But I hope that each one just kind of, I hope you can just kind of soak in each one. Like in my mind, I want to imagine this as being like sitting at the shore and just waves just kind of keep crashing over you 
of the reality of how much you are loved as each truth is expressed and talked about. The first one, uh, this first section has to do with how our relationship has changed. One, we are made alive as new creations. And we've looked at the first verse already. The second verse, John 3:36 says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Already has it. He has eternal life. So you are alive in Christ. You're a new creation and you already have eternal life. All those things are already true about you. The second point, we have an intimate and personal family relationship. The Bible says that we are adopted by God, adopted. Uh, Ephesians 1.5 says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Not because you and I are awesome. It doesn't say that. It says according to the kind intention of his will. So because of his goodness and his kindness and his love, you and I are adopted. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So when someone receives him, they are given right in that moment the right to become a child of God. When you become a Christian, you are a son or a daughter of the king right then, then and forever. It's a radically new thing. Number three, both of these verses talk about the fact that for one who believes, Christ is in you. There are more verses than that, but those are two of them. Colossians 1.27 is that verse where it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your hope in what is to come comes from the reality and the fact that Christ lives in you. Number four, we've been given eternal life and a promised resurrected body. Philippians 3.21 says, He who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power, of the power that he has, that he has even to subject all things to himself. So this verse, along with 1 Corinthians 15, that whole section in there, talks about the fact that we will be given a resurrected body with which we can live with him forever. Number five, we have, <coughs> excuse me, we have hope and we have a personal home that's being prepared for us by Christ. In John 14 and John 13, Jesus started talking about the fact that he was going to be leaving. He was starting to let the disciples in on the fact that he was going to lose his life and he was going to be returning to the Father. That was causing anxiety. It was causing troubled hearts within the apostles and disciples. Jesus responds and calms them by saying this, you know that if I leave you, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm not going to just leave you here. I will come back and I will take you to be with me there forever. So they find contentment and peace and joy in the reality that Jesus is preparing a place for them as he is for all believers. And one day he will come back and he will take us to himself and we will go to be with him forever. That is a beautiful truth that becomes true for you the moment you believe. So when you and I struggle with anxiety, stress, doubt, all those things that just run in and through our minds and our hearts, the truth that Jesus used to encourage and stabilize the wavering hearts of the apostles is the same truth that can be used for us. That indeed, he will come back and he will take you to be home with him forever in a place that he is ongoingly 
preparing for us. That verb there is, is the concept that he's still working on it. He made the world in six days, or whatever you think, but like he made it, like in a certain amount of time, the world was made. He's still working on the place that we're going to. That's kind of exciting. I don't know what that means. I'm not gonna guess what it means, but like he's putting some time into this thing. I'm excited about that. Looking forward to seeing what that is. Number six, Ephesians 5, I think it's verse nine, but verses eight through 11, he just says, you are light in the Lord. When you believe, you now are light in the Lord. Um, when we see in John chapter one, it talks about Jesus being the light of, it talks about the light came into the darkness and the light shone into the darkness and they couldn't understand it. But there's this concept where Jesus is described as light. And now that we are united with him, in some way, we are the light of the Lord. As we live as his ambassadors, as we're called to be the aroma of Christ, all these things are part of us being a representative of Christ himself, displaying his likeness in who he is. Uh, second section talks about the fact that we are now righteous, reconciled, and redeemed. Number seven says, all your sins are totally paid for. All your sins are totally paid for. That's past, number eight, past, present, and future. It is finished. It is a done deal. There's no sin that you've committed that still hangs over your head. There's no sin that you will do that could cause you to lose your salvation or cause you to no longer be a child of God. He's paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. That is now true for you. Hebrews 10:12 says, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for all time, for all sins, when Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for your full, secure salvation forever. Page 49, at the top, number nine. The Bible says that you stand justified and perfect in God's eyes. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. By one offering, for by one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So here it says, you stand justified. So the gavel has come down in the heavenly courtrooms and it has been declared, you are justified. Your sin is forgiven. You are legally have a right standing before God. The concept of righteousness is a right standing before God. Because you're justified, you've received Christ's righteousness. You have a right standing before the king of the universe. The only wise king and judge looks at you and says, justified. And we are also considered perfect in God's eyes. So last week we talked about Jesus will sometimes ask things of us that we really cannot do. Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He tells us to do that, like be as perfect. Like this is God's standard, the father. Jesus says, meet him, eye to eye, toe to toe, as perfect as the father. Well, we're not gonna be able to do that on our own. And Jesus knows that, so what does he do? He dies in our place and makes us perfect. So we find holiness, blamelessness, and moral perfection not in what we accomplished, but in what he accomplished for us. So the only way that we live up to Matthew 5:48 is by saying, Jesus, I need you to stand in my place. 
That's how we live it out. Jesus was setting us up to understand the depths of the realities of the gospel and what he was going to accomplish for us on the cross. Number 10, your sins are absolutely forgiven and forgotten. Forgiven and forgotten. So maybe you don't have one, but lots of people have a friend or a family member. Some people have a spouse who periodically brings back up to your attention things that you've done wrong in the past. So you mess up on something over here, and all of a sudden you're reminded of three other things similar to that where you also messed up, okay? God doesn't do that to us. Okay, sometimes we do that to other people. Sometimes other people do that to us. God doesn't do that. He has forgiven you of those sins, and he has put them out of his mind with intentionality. God doesn't forget like he can't remember it. He's all-knowing, but it never comes back. It is gone. It is washed away. He has seen the stain, and he's made it white as snow, and it is gone. It's no longer on your account. So he doesn't bring it up against you. Jesus handled it and took care of it. It doesn't come back on you. So for you and I, the sins have been forgotten. Number 11, there is now no condemnation. We are fully reconciled. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are, since there's no condemnation, that means we're in a position, we're in a place where we can have total peace with one another. We can stand with peace, at peace with God the Father in our relationship with him. Number 12 is similar. It says that we are reconciled and at peace with God through this justification. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, not on our own, not by our own doing, not because we tried really hard or were really, really good. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ that we have this peace. Now, when we talk about justification, you heard me described as like a gavel hitting the, t hitting the courtroom bench and declared that we're righteous. Sometimes I've heard people say, and I've heard it around here, one way to remember the term justified is that it means that we're like, it's like just as if I'd never sinned. Have you ever heard that? Everyone's nodding. So justified, just as if I'd never sinned. So that's kind of true, but oh, I, it, it, I don't like it. Let me tell you why Pastor Mike doesn't like it. Because to say justified is just as if I'd never sinned, I guarantee when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus on the cross wasn't thinking, oh, it's just like he never did anything. No, the weight of each and every sin landed on the back of Jesus Christ himself. So it's not just as if I never sinned. It, I just feel like that makes a little of what Christ did. It's not like it just went away. It's not like it just, the sin just floated away. It landed on the Savior we love. So it's not just like I didn't do it. It's like he, I just feel like that goes in the wrong direction. It almost makes little of sin. And when you make little of sin, sometimes it can make little of the work of Christ. So it's more than just as if I'd never sinned. It's no, Jesus had to die in my place because of my sin and because he died in my place and bore incredible pain and the wrath of God. Now I'm declared righteous and I'm justified because of the declaration of what Jesus did. I would rather hear it that way. That's not as fun because it doesn't rhyme. And I understand rhyming helps, uh, but I feel like it takes away from the work of what Jesus really did. So just, just a thought there. Maybe, maybe don't teach anybody that. Just for my sake. Yes? It's also almost, it's almost, it, well, my past sins are gone. That makes 
That's a good point. So if, if we take just as if I'd never sinned, it almost take, it takes sin lightly, which means that it's not a big deal if I sin a little bit more, which I think, Ellen, is kind of what you're saying. So yeah, that's, that's a good thought. And what he did on the cross for us, lightly. But it's, a, it's an easy way to remember it, which is why it's popular. Like, as soon as I started saying it, I saw some of you mouthing the end of it. Like, so like, I know you've heard it before. Um, and again, don't go punching someone if you hear them say it. I didn't punch any of you. And if you hear me say it, please don't punch me. But like, just, just, just realize that there is a little more to it than that. Like, that's, there's more to it than that. Okay? Um, the third section is talking about the resources we have when we became a Christian because we're now joint heirs with Christ. Number one, no, we're on 13. Number 13, it says that we are loved. We are perfectly secure, eternally inseparable, in our love relationship with him. Romans 8, 38 and 39, you guys would all know that section. Uh, it basically says that nothing can separate us from God, not angels, not demons, not anything from heaven or on earth, not anything of all, in all of creation, nothing past, present, or future. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Just notice this. When it does say nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, you're included in that. You are part of all of creation. Okay? So you are not in a position to separate yourself from the love of God. Once you're a child of God, you don't have the power to pull his fingers out of your life, to release his grip so you can do whatever you want. Like, no, he's given you eternal life. You are now secure in him. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. You're a part of that, okay? And I hope, I hope, so sometimes people hear that and they'll say, but I want the freedom to be able to pull away from God. Why would you want that? Don't fight for that. Okay, don't fight for the free will to be able to pull away from God. Be thankful that he's got a hold of you so firmly that you can't mess up to the point of walking away from God and losing his love. Because if, sure if I could, I surely would. Amen. I mean, that's the tendency. I mean, if you know yourself, I mean, I'm, so, so we had the discussion last week and Pastor Mike never even told you what Pastor Mike thinks. But like, just, just so you know, I'm never going to be out there fighting for more free will for Pastor Mike. Whenever Pastor Mike has more free will, Pastor Mike doesn't make great choices. The more the Lord can fill me and change me and grow me and secure me, I want more of him, less of this guy. Like, that's my tendency. Okay, I'm going to still say it's mysterious and I see good points on both sides of the discussion we had last week. But I'm never going to vote, give me more free will. I'm not looking for more of that. I'm really thankful to know that God has me securely regardless of myself. Our greatest goal, so when we become a Christian, he reorients our focus, where we're going, what our goals are. So now our greatest goal is to be more like Jesus. The Bible also says that we're given power. The power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is available to you in Christ. Ephesians 1 18 through 20, and you see Paul also pray for that in Ephesians chapter 3. In both cases, there's this prayer for power. Why? Because we need the power of God to even begin to comprehend, know, grasp this incredible love of God. That's how big the love is. Unless God gives you some of his power, you've got no shot of knowing his love. So God needs to intervene into our lives, into our minds, our hearts, our wills, our strength to give us the ability to wrap our heads and hands and hearts around the love of Christ because it's so big. 
and so huge. So he gives us that power so we can always grow in the love of Christ. Okay, I think we're doing good on time, so I'm going to do a little excursion real quick. Uh, so from that sermon, Romans, nope, I just looked at the book of Romans, sorry. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, is a verse, I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I've ever heard it taught correctly out loud. Uh, it says this, it comes right after, right after that prayer that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, catch that. I'm praying that you would know something that is unknowable, is what he's saying. And the only sh shot you have is if you have the power of God. That's the only shot you have. And then he says, because it could almost feel discouraging, like you're praying for something that's, that you can grab a hold of that's actually beyond your reach. That's what you're praying for in those verses. So then in verse 20, he praises God in such a way to give you hope. He says, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. So sometimes we take that verse and we just apply it randomly into whatever part of our life we want. I want to start a business. I want to sell shoes. You know what? God can do more than I can imagine. So someday maybe I'll sell shoes, toothbrushes, and shirts. You think I'm joking. People use that verse however they want. Okay? It's just like the Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ gives me strength. And I look at this one and I go, and he can do even more than what I can imagine. I, must, I mean, that's like a, those are like superhero verses, right? You put those two things together and interpret them incorrectly. You're jumping off buildings. You're trying to run through brick walls. But the reality is, in context, where that verse gives us hope is he says, even though it seems like his love is beyond what you can grasp, it's a little beyond what you can reach, God can do more in you and through you than you can even imagine. Even though it feels like you, you can't understand God's love and the work of Christ and the beauty of Christ at the level you want, in that area of your life, God can work in ways that are beyond what you can imagine. That's the context. So when John, at the end of that service, got up and explained it that way and then prayed it that way, I didn't do anything, but I wanted to stand up and clap. That's how you understand that verse. Because the immeasurably more than you can imagine thing that he's talking about is knowing the love of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. So that's what that whole section has to do with. Do so, that, yes. I've been taking this class and, and under your teaching, the, the realization that everything my life is was meant to bring glory to God. Hmm. So I think of this in, in ways the power is for me to live a life that brings even more glory hmm. to God. Well said. Absolutely. Yes. And one of the ways that we bring him more glory is by falling more in love with him when he becomes more desirable. And we said before, like, when I love him more, then I'm just going to want to do what he wants me to do. So this grabbing a hold of Christ's love makes me say, yes, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and live in such a way that will honor you. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it because I love you so much. It's like when you're just head over heels in love with your spouse. Like, you'll do whatever it takes to take care of your spouse. You'll warm up their covers. You'll do this. You'll make them breakfast. You'll do whatever because you love them so much. Same response in our relationship with God. Um, so that's just a beautiful passage talking about that. And then verse 21, Kathy, to go along with that, is to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So yeah, all that leads to God's glory. So yeah, I agree. Well said. Um, where were we?
Are we on 16? Is that where we are? He promises to supply all my needs. Philippians 4.19 says, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, he didn't say he's going to take care of all your wants. Did you catch that? He didn't say wants. He said needs. And who defines your needs? He defines your needs. Okay? So it doesn't mean anything other than God will make sure you have exactly what he wants you to have when he wants you to have it. But we can bet on that. Like, we can trust him. We don't need to worry about our wants. We worry about his goodness. And based upon his goodness and love, we're going to be okay. Number 17, we are joint heirs with Christ. So Romans 8, 16 and 17 say this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So we are heirs slash co-heirs with Christ. Now, if you spend much time watching um, like movies where there's castles and kings and princes and princesses, you know, some Camelot stuff, what always happens is, is it's exciting to be an heir because when that king dies, you become king. That's not what's going on here because the king of kings, the lord of lords, the father, never gets off the throne. So for all of eternity, he rules. But for all of eternity, we get to live as co-heirs with Christ at his right hand. So that's a position we get to be in forever. Not that we one day get to take over the throne, but we sit in his presence, in his glory, with Christ forever, enjoying his glory, interconnected with his rulership. Okay, that's a beautiful thing. We don't totally understand what that's going to look like. Like, I can't even imagine that in my mind. But that is part of what's going, that, that's part of something that is true and will continue to be true through all of eternity. Another section is the fact that we now have some rights, that we have citizenship. There are certain promises that he's given us. There's certain authority that he allows us to have. Number 18, we are now citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. That's present tense. It's not you will become a citizen of heaven. Your citizenship is already in heaven. So when, so when your roof leaks, your car breaks down, your knee stops working, something else on your body stops working, and you're just like, you know what? It just doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like where I'm supposed to be long term. It's not. You and I are homeward bound. We are passing through. You are sojourning. You are in exile right now. You are passing through. So Lord willing, this doesn't feel like where you want to be forever. There should be some excitement about what is to come. Paul looked at his life, which was hard, but he was doing beautiful, amazing ministry. And he said, I want to be with Christ because being with Christ is far better in Philippians 1. Like, far better. He says, God's called me to continue in the flesh and to keep doing ministry, but I can't wait for the day because no matter how good it gets here, it's even better there. Far better. So our citizenship is not here. It is there already. Okay, basically you need a passport to stay here. You need your green card because that, that's all you got here. So if things don't feel like they're right, it's because they're not. They're broken. You are not yet home. Okay, so when you look at your possessions, when you look at your values, when you look at your priorities, 
Don't give everything to this world. Set yourself up well for your real retirement, your real home, your long-term home, okay? Think that way, okay? It's easy. Am I focused on my retirement account or am I focused on my eternity account? Like, what am I focused on? The only things that live forever is God, the Word of God, and the souls of men. And the more you invest in those three things, the more joy you're going to have. Those three things, that's how you invest in your eternal retirement. Invest in those things, God, the Word of God, and the souls of men. We just get distracted. We all get distracted. Um, but our citizenship is beautifully and truly in heaven. 1 John 4.18 talks about us being able to be fearless because of Jesus. We're overcomers with Jesus. We have victory over sin, um, slash we're kind of undefeated. Now that sounds really good. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is that section where it says, no temptation has seized you except for that which is common to man. And when you are tempted, Christ won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, and he'll always provide a way out for you. So now you're in a situation where you don't have to sin. As a non-Christian, you didn't really have a choice. Everything you did, you were going to sin, because in everything you, you didn't do it with faith, you didn't do it to the glory of God, you didn't do it in the name of Christ, but as a Christian, you have the choice to not sin. Now, you and I both know that oftentimes we're still going to make the wrong choice, but as a Christian now, you don't have to sin. So that's something that changed in your world. Number 22, we have victory over our circumstances. We're undaunted. What a cool word. Uh, Romans 8.28 says this, For God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Is this a promise for everyone? It's not. It's conditional. Do you notice that? For God works all things together for who? For a particular group of people. For those who love him and those who have been called according to his purpose. So that's not everyone. So just, just don't throw that promise out randomly to whoever you're talking to, because it's not true for every single person you're talking to. For those who truly love him and have been called according to his purpose, yeah, he's going to take care of them. So because you're a believer, you can now fall into that category. Um, for me, like when I was in high school, <clears throat> when I was 17, which my son's going to be 16 in not too long, so I can't believe I was his age when this happened, but uh, I lost my best friend to a suicide. And I was already a Christian at that time and had been walking with the Lord for a while, and he was too. I watched him lead people to Christ and lead Bible studies, and he had fallen into a really rough depression, which at the time I didn't really know what it was. Like I, I couldn't, I knew he was not okay, but like I didn't know anything about that. And he came from a very hardcore church that basically said you should never see some, you should never seek help. If you are in a depression, it's because of your sins, pray more. Like that was kind of their response. Well, believe it or not, that didn't help. So in his deep depression, he eventually gave up and he took his life. Now, two or three days later, when I got to go up and be a part of the eulogy, I shared that verse. I said, and I said that, I said, I don't understand this. I don't know why. I can't speak for Ben, but I know for those of us who remain, who've placed our faith in Christ, God's going to work this out together for the good. I don't know how, but I'm trusting him to do so. That's just something that I said up front. Um, I barely remember it. Like the whole, for weeks, just in a fog, like what the experience was like. I remember after that, on several different occasions, I had people come up to me during school. It was our senior year. There was only a couple, 
months left of school, and they just came up to me and they just said, I'm ready. I want to know what it means to become a Christian. Okay. So I sit down. I walk them through what it meant to be a Christian. They would just pray and receive Christ. And then a couple weeks later, someone else would do it. Like, that's what's just started happening. No explanation. Like, just for some reason, God actually did that. Like, out of the depths of incredible pain and despair and hurt and sadness, like, God just started, like, we started seeing these crazy, like, blessings, and people started coming to know Christ. One of those people that came to know Christ in that time is a, is a guy named Keith who, right now, literally, he spends, his full time, spends all his time going from campus to campus across the country, and he shows up, and he'll drum up a crowd, and then he'll start dealing with the hardest questions of the day, and then move towards gospel solutions. The only way this works out, people, and he moves towards gospel solutions. He's brilliant. In high school, he wasn't brilliant. He was a DNC student. Um, funniest kid you've ever met. So funny. Really popular. Everyone knew him. Now he takes that humor and that giftedness, and he's on college campuses all over the country. He's been doing it for over a decade. That came out of really dark days. God brought really beautiful things. So rays of hope, rays of light in really dark places. God really can work together for the good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Let's look at another verse. This is a verse that can be beautiful or a verse that can be misused and it can be tragic. I'd prefer that you and I use it correctly. Philippians 4.13, what does that verse say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let's view it this way. Here's a goalpost. You know those Charlie Brown things where Lucy's holding the football and then she yanks it? So, so we'll pretend it's something like that. All right, so Philippians 4.13, the young football player marches out onto the field and he, in his mind, believes that Philippians 4.13 is a promise from God that if he just trusts in God, his foot will hit this and that ball will go through those uprights. Is that what that verse is saying? I don't think so either. So what does it say in verses 11 and 12? Do you remember the context of the verse? Paul says, whether I have a lot or I don't have anything, I have Christ and I'm content and that's enough. So whether I've got a bunch or I've got nothing, I still have him and that's all I need. So whether the ball goes through the upright is kind of how this goes. If the ball goes through the upright or the ball misses to the right, whether I have a lot or I have little, it doesn't matter because I still have him. So sometimes we put this verse on this side of the ball. It's telling me that I can, I can kick the ball through if I just trust enough. And when the ball misses, if I put the verse in the wrong place, I'm like, goodness, Lord, you weren't faithful to your promise. You told me I could do all things. I know it was a 95-yard field goal. It made, no sense to, it made no sense to even try it, but you said all things. Doesn't all mean all to you, God? Because I expected you to put that thing through. I was going to kick it. Your angel was going to take it and toss it through, right? So if we put it in the wrong place, we begin to question the character of God. But if we put it in the correct place, it allows me to try great things for God, knowing that I still have him in the end. So when the verse is put in the correct spot, it's powerful. It's so powerful. When it's put in the wrong spot, it's goofy. It has people like trusting God to do things that God doesn't, like, like who cares if it goes through? Like in the moment, that kicker thinks it's the most important thing in the world. The next day, the next week, the next month, the next decade, he doesn't care in any way, shape, or form. 
because the thing that mattered was that he was still found in Christ. And that was the most important thing. So that verse is designed to be here, not here. Okay? So imagine this. <laughs> this is scary. So say we take that Ephesians 3.20 verse, and we use it incorrectly. God can do imaginal, ima he can do more than I can possibly imagine or think, and I can do all things in Christ. I mean, those are like your two superhero verses, right? And you put those two things together incorrectly, and you put them both on the wrong side. We have to make sure we understand things in context, or we can have a wrong understanding of God and how he intends on taking care of us, interacting with us, and strengthening us and empowering us. So Philippians 4.13 lands on that side. Why they... The other part of that, we always forget, is Paul says he learned to be content. Oh, good point. Okay. Most people forget that he had to learn. It took a while. We have to learn it too. Sometimes you have to go with a little, and sometimes we get a lot, and it takes some time to learn those things. Very good point, Steve. Uh, so, yeah, so just that goes along with the... What point were we on? Romans... 22, so victory over circumstances. So one, I know God works, works things out. And I know regardless of circumstances, I have him. Philippians 4.13, both are beautiful realities. In Christ, we have freedom. We've been liberated. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 24, we have the armor of God. 25, the devil himself is rendered powerless in light of the power of Christ who's at work in our life. Okay, section 5, number 26. We are now promised that God will answer our prayers. Now, let's just realize that that's the way he wants to answer them. Okay, he's going to answer them in the way that he sees what's best for you. Like the Bible says, you know, even a good parent doesn't give his kids snakes and rocks. Like, so he's gonna, but sometimes goofy kids want snakes and they want rocks, right? So what God does is he's like, no, I'm not gonna give you a rock. Here's something even better. Here's a loaf of bread. So like God answers our prayers the way that he knows what's best for us. Um, we have confident access to God. Um, Hebrews 4.16 says, therefore, based upon everything that he's just said, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So we have access to God at all times. We have confidence. We just go right into his throne room. We don't have to knock and hope that he answers the door. It says just go in. Just, you just run right in. Right? So when my kids were little, I'd walk into the door and they just run up and they just, just like go right one on each leg. They just grab you. Daddy's home. That's the picture you get with the Lord. Like, you have access to him. Now, if I walk in and you guys do that to me, that's awkward, because you're not my kids, right? That's awkward. I'll say, could you step back, please? But, <clears throat> but with my kids, it's appropriate. And we are his kids, so it's totally appropriate. Like, when you want him, he's there. You just go and you grab him. It also says, these next two I'm going to put together, 28, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And it says that somehow we are at the right hand of the Father, okay, with Christ. 30 says we reign with Christ. So there's these pictures of somehow you and I are in this room right now, but spiritually the Lord is like, also has us with Christ at the right hand of the Father. So that's part of our reality. Like we're kind of already joined to Christ, a co-heir with Christ at the right hand of the Father. 
I'll be honest, that's just kind of beyond what I can understand. It would take a long time for me to try to understand it and therefore be able to teach it. So I'll just say it and move on. Uh, 31 says that we are a royal priest, part of a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So you are all those things. These are beautiful things. You're a chosen race. And he's speaking of you as being a part of a bigger group. So when he called you to be a son or a daughter, he's also called you into a family. That means there's more than one of you. Together, you and I together are a chosen race. We together are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are his. And isn't that good to know? Um, we've also been given the Holy Spirit. So uh, it says we've been given the Holy Spirit, John 14. That's that same section where Jesus says, I'm going to be leaving you, but I'm going to be sending someone. And he talks about the counselor, the helper, the Holy Spirit. He actually says it's better if he goes so that he can send the Holy Spirit. So that's a big deal. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. He seals us. He is a pledge, a down payment. He's a guarantee of our salvation. We are given the Holy Spirit knowing that we will see him face to face. All right. 36. Uh, continuing with the conversation about the Holy Spirit, he fills every yielded life. Ephesians 5.18 talks about, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So instead of being filled with something that controls and consumes you that isn't the Lord, be filled and consumed with the Lord himself. And that word filled there isn't like a one-time thing. It's like an ongoing, continuous expectation that you are always being filled with the Spirit. So say today you had a really good day and you were filled with the Spirit. The same command is true for tomorrow. Keep things out of your life that fill you up instead of God's Spirit, which is kind of the context there. If I'm more filled up with playing apps on my phone, if I'm filled up with playing words with friends, then sometimes I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean we don't do other things, but we do it as we're filled with the Spirit and live our life through the Spirit, not do other things and tell God, hey, you can come along while I do this. I'm going to go play golf. You want to come along? You can come along. Have him be the center of your life and live out of that is what that means. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds. He is our counselor. And when it talks about illuminating our minds, it's the context of as we go into Scripture, he makes the Scripture more clear. He helps us understand what Jesus taught us. He empowers us for evangelism. He convicts the lost of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is the giver of spiritual gifts as he wills. Number 40, we are made spiritual. Fruit is produced in and through us by the Holy Spirit. So we see that we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. And then we were supposed to produce spiritual fruit, Galatians 5.22. Those two things go together. As you're filled with the Spirit, you see your life looking like the Spirit. The results are living like God himself, patient, full of joy, contentment, and all the fruits of the Spirit. All right. We're going to go all the way to page 54. So just flip that one page and go to the next page. So when it comes to 
So those were the 40 things, okay? Those 40 things, I would love for you just to kind of get some of those stuck in your head, stuck in your heart, hold on to those things, remember those things. If you ever want to do a small group Bible study, take three weeks and slowly work through those and work through all the verses together. That is a wonderful thing for us to do as a church. I think as a church, we sometimes get more hung up on the what's than the why's. So that means we need to spend a little time swinging the pendulum back. We spend a little bit of time focusing on the why's. The why's are he loves you so much that he made all these things true of you the moment you were saved. Therefore, I'm going to live my life for him, the what's. So let's spend some time on the why's. That's something you can use to help you with that. So last week, the conversation is, what was the interplay or how did it work when, it, when I came to know Christ? How much did he reach down and grab me? How much did I reach up and grab him? How was that decision made? Here the question is a little bit, as I'm growing in Christ, how much is me? How much is him? And in two minutes, we're going to figure that out. In Philippians 1.6, it says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the completion until the day of Christ. According to this, the one who began the good work in you was him. And he who started it is going to see it through. Like if you hired a contractor, maybe this has never happened to you. This has happened to me with a tree. You hire someone to do something, they get started, and they just go off and they forget and they go do something else. That's not what Jesus does here. Like he starts it and he sees it through and he completes it. And what he's talking about there is you. Until the day of Christ, he keeps working in and through you until you see him face to face. Your confidence isn't in yourself. Your confidence is in him. He's the one who says he will do it. And if he's promised it, and he's willing to die on a cross for me, I certainly believe that he's going to hold on to me and continue to work in and through me until I see him face to face. I can trust him with that. He started it. He will complete it. We're going to bump down a little bit to the next Philippians verse, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. I think this is a hard verse. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then what's the next word after that? Okay. So see how I kind of go under the word and I slash up? Like when I see a for, a therefore, a but, a so that, like I do this every time I see a key word. That causes me to slow down. Because when I see a key word like this, it's showing me the relationship between one phrase and another phrase, or one sentence and another sentence, or one paragraph to another paragraph. So those key words are essential for understanding the flow of thought and what I'm actually reading. So in this, so remember with a therefore, the why was on this side, right? And the what was on this side. With a four, it's an upside down therefore. The what is on this side, and the why is on this side. With a therefore, it's the other way. With a four, it's a what leading into a why. So the what in this verse is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the why, or the ground for that statement, is, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I'm supposed to work out my salvation. Like there should be spiritual calluses on my hands, spiritual sweat on my brow, but not because I'm the one who gets credit for it, not because I'm the one who's ultimately doing it. He's the one who's ultimately doing it. But because I can trust that he's going to do it, 
I can put all my effort into it knowing I'm not going to fail. I can go after this thing because I'm, I'm, I'm sure-footed because of him. My why is that he's the one at work within me. So my what is go for it. Since I can trust him and he's committed to me, he's committed to doing it for his own good pleasure, I can go for it. My what is I go for it, okay? Um, how fun is that? Because, so the fear and trembling isn't questioning the Lord. The fear and trembling would be connected to our ability to do it. And we realize that there's an inability to do it. So I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm afraid I'm going to fall down. But the reality is, is I can keep going. I can keep pushing. I can keep pressing. Because ultimately, he's the one holding me up, not holding myself. So in this, you see, um, it's like, this is the picture. It's like, you're a little kid on a bike and your dad's holding the bike. And your dad says, I've got you. Pedal as hard as you can. You're not gonna lose me, let's go. And you start pedaling. And then you are, you're like, oh, I wonder if this bike's gonna tip. Okay, it's, it's steady, dad's got me. So there's a little fear, you're a little nervous, but because you know dad's got you, you pedal your heart out, right? You can finally go for it because God, because God slash dad has got you. That's the picture here. You pedal as hard as you can. I've got the bike. I'll guide you, I won't let you fall. So there's emotions going on with pedaling, and there's effort going on with pedaling, but ultimately, Dad's got you. Dad has got you. So it's almost a bridge between the two things we talked about last week. Um, mm. I, I, I don't know if I've got this board for but and, and the prayer uh, where the footprints in the sand and you're struggling, you realize that all oh, that are God's Fear and trembling part, uh, we're struggling. And we think if we fail, we're going to be out. Hmm. But we don't have to worry about failing because he's there. He's there. Good. Very good. Um, let me close this in prayer. And then if you'd like to stay around for a minute or two, I'm going to kind of talk to you about where we're going with core classes. Because a couple of people have asked me, as of 24 hours ago, we, 24 hours ago, we have an idea of what we're doing. So it won't be a for sure, but I'll present you an idea of where we're going. Uh, Father, I thank you for this group. I thank you for this study. How fun to study what you did for us. You saved us. You interacted. You came into our life, and you've changed everything about us. Our identity is now completely and fully in you, and that reality is overwhelming. May that cause us to fall more in love with you every single day. Allow these things to be seared into our mind, our heart, and our conscience. May we live out of who we are, uh, not out of fear, not out of weakness, not of our own flesh, but out of the reality of who you are and what you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen.